Byzantium and friends, this is episode 97. I hope you're having a wonderful day, wherever you are. If I were to ask you to picture in your mind a medieval hospital or orphanage or leprosarium, which is an institution to house um, people who are afflicted with what was considered leprosy in the Middle Ages, you would probably picture something pretty grim. In fact, you would probably do that if I asked you to picture any pre-modern version of those institutions, and even many modern ones. But what if, in the case that interests us the most, and here we're talking about Constantinople, but also some other cities in the Eastern Empire, that picture was wrong, and that these institutions were quite remarkable, where significant resources were invested in making them institutions that were a point of pride for the society that created them, where emperors repeatedly drew attention to the investments that they made in them, to the functioning of these institutions, and where their directors sometimes were very powerful political officials at the court, by virtue of the fact that they were placed in charge of these institutions. Well, this is something like the picture that emerges from a now classic study of the birth of the hospital in the Byzantine Empire written by Timothy Miller, um, originally in 1985. So I read it when I was in graduate school, and it blew me away. It was not only the extraordinary things that these institutions did, and in this particular case, the hospital, but also the extraordinary details that Tim uncovered in the course of his research. And little things like Byzantine doctors being given certificates of passing examinations on the works of Galen. And I was fascinated by these and tracked down the sources, and sure enough, they said exactly what Tim says that they say. But on a different level, at that time, the book helped me think about the combination and articulation of cultural elements that together made up what we then called Byzantine culture. Think about it this way in terms of the hospital specifically. In in the sense of how they combined Roman, Greek, and Christian elements. So specifically, many of these institutions were attached to or associated with monasteries where the monks would provide a service function which was part of their general mission of caring and service and charity uh, toward the rest of society. But at the same time, the purpose of the hospital was not simply to care for people while they waited to die, but to actually provide medical care. And that was provided by specialist doctors who were not the monks. These were functions were kept separate Um, And actual doctors uh, in wards and wings uh, designated for different kinds of conditions, different sexes, were trying to care for their patients, uh, make them better uh, so they could leave. And all of this institution was often structured as an imperial institution that is funded by the state, organized, uh, that interfaced with the political apparatus at the court, Uh, which provided a great deal of the organization. 
you know, without any one of those elements, this would not have come together in quite the way that it did. And this offered me a kind of model for thinking about many other things in this society that tended to combine elements um, from this very rich and diverse patrimony that the East Romans had. Now, Tim then went on to write uh, two more books on this topic. One of them was on orphanages and more specifically on the famous orphanage of Constantinople, which was located just north of the palace on the, um, the Acropolis of ancient Byzantium, so you know, more or less roughly where the palace of the um, later um, Ottoman sultans was based. And the director of the orphanage was a very, at times, a very important political official. And he then wrote um, another book, on institutions for housing and caring for lepers. And so altogether, uh, Tim has provided this wonderful triptych of philanthropic institutions um, throughout Byzantine history and is certainly the foremost authority um, on that side of the culture. He also writes in a very accessible way and makes the issues and the sources very clear in all three books. And recently, I was reading through um, the Cambridge Companion to Constantinople that our colleague Sarah Bassett recently edited. Thank you for that, Sarah. And, and Tim had a chapter in there kind of summarizing his findings over the course of so many decades. And I thought it would be a wonderful opportunity uh, for him to kind of present a small part of the data that he has found. You'd have to read the books to get the whole picture. But I also find him very eloquent um, and engaging when he's speaking about this material, and he's also a very generous scholar. Uh, so I really was looking forward to this conversation, and I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. Uh, so thanks again, Medievalist.net, for reposting these episodes. And uh, without any further delay, here's my conversation with Tim Miller. Hello, Tim. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, hello, Anthony. Hi. So I'm very happy to have you on here. The other day I was reading Sarah's Companion to Constantinople and I came across your chapter where you synthesize a lot of the work that you've done on the philanthropic institutions in Constantinople and the Byzantine Empire more generally. And you've worked on hospitals and orphanages and treatments of lepers and all kinds of things. And I thought it was time to have you on because you've produced a real critical mass now. I think you're the kind of expert in this field. You've done more than anyone else. And I also just wanted to say just at the outset that your book on the hospitals was a real inspiration to me when I was in graduate school. It, it, I mean, it, it really is an amazing book because it does all of the things that I wish you know our scholarship would more commonly do, which is to synthesize evidence from such a wide range of sources in order to tell us something new that you would never guess from any individual source. And I, I just thought it was just a magnificent uh, reconstruction based on that. And, you know, I know that, so the picture of hospitals that you paint, you know, it was pretty revolutionary. Like, I don't think anybody realized that these institutions existed way like that. And I was just thinking that, imagine if you were to tell someone that the, you know, Byzantines had flamethrowers and hand grenades, which they did. Yeah. If the evidence for Greek fire had never been put together and we like you had to ex you had to introduce that as a new thing in the field, like just how odd it would seem. But nevertheless, entirely real. 
So I just wanted to say that um, it's an amazing book. I'm glad it's also been translated into other languages too. So let's dive into the welfare services and philanthropic institutions. Could you start off by telling us a little bit about the institutional framework in which these operated? That is, what what kinds of institutions were these from like an administrative and financial point of view, um, especially in relationship to the other institutions that the audience might know, like the state and the church and so forth? Like who ran these things? Yeah, that's a really complicated question. <laughs> and it changes with each type of institution. But basically, they all spring out of Christian institutions. You know, the the Christian church um, promoted uh, helping its own initially in the first, second, third century. The bishop kind of ran on informal charity. But then with Constantine's conversion and then the huge change of the empire in the fourth century, uh, the Christian church had to expand its operations. And also they, they, they benefited from it. Peter Brown's book is good about that, that they, the bishop steps forth as sort of the patron of the poor, and you have all these new people coming into big cities like Constantinople and Antioch, where the, uh, what do you call it, the polis structure really couldn't handle them. And so the bishop sets forth this kind of uh, representing the poor, and to take care of specific uh, types of problems, he supports these uh, hospitals, orphanages, and uh, leprosaria, and even these things called xenodokia, the, we would translate that as hospice. But, you know, that's the one thing I haven't dealt with. Um, mm. Kitzinger out of Austria has written a real good article on them. Uh, it's, uh, but I, I don't want to talk about them too much except to make distinctions. But anyway, the Christian church both did it out of charity to, you know, to, to, to meet its obligations to Christ, but also did gain political power and uh, oh, one other feature, I think that um, monastic movement has a lot to do with it, but what's called the urban monastic movement, I think I really did a lot of work on that. I got a lot of it from Dagraw, um, that the urban monks whom actually monastic historians don't really consider monks. I've looked into, you know, talked to a few people who work just with monks, and they tend to ignore that urban monastic movement and see it more as sort of uh, moving into those uh, sodalities or uh, uh, lay organizations, you know, pious organizations. So anyway, they 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 play a role to the, the urban monks. And then also a role is competition during the fourth century over the various factions with regard to the Nicene Creed. You know, the Nicaeans fighting the super Arians and you had the the milder form of Arianism, and then a compromised imperial church that was not supposed to bother with it, you know. And the result was a lot of competition to gain support from local uh, populations for that particular branch of Christianity. So it is linked to Christianity, but also other issues involved in the polis structure. Then the other thing is the emperors. The emperors started giving money to these places, either land grants or uh, tax exemptions, or other things like that. But each in individual institution will have other methods of support. But we can deal with them, you know, as we look at individual types. Well, sure. So it's my understanding that, I mean, a lot of the wealth of the church in the starting in the fourth century comes from imperial grants. And, yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, and some of it is earmarked for these kinds of services. Right. 
And so gave a lot of estates in Cappadocia to Basil to help build that big institution outside of uh, Caesarea. Yeah. So by the point that, let's say by the sixth century or after, when emperors are actively creating their own version of this, they're basically sort of drafting both bishops and monastic institutions into an otherwise centrally planned project that's funded by the imperial state. Yes, especially with the Orphanotrophian. It basically becomes a bureau of the imperial government. Yeah, and you have like uh, secular directors of them, you know, just... uh, Yeah, Justinian, I was going to say one thing I didn't think of in the 4th century, and especially in the 5th and the 6th, the bishops get these grants from wealthy Christian lay people. Mm. Justinian changed the concept of that by allowing these uh, private donors to continue to control the institution. There's several... uh, 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 constitutions of his that do that. So that in that, that case, you know, the, the founder of the, of the philanthropy can determine who the uh, head is going to be, the administrative head. Even after he dies, that power can pass to the heir. So that was Justinian, I think, done to encourage a lot more private donors. Uh, but that's that's another issue. So um, in those cases, it's not clear how much the, supposedly the bishop was always supposed to oversee them, but the actual uh, ability to daily supervise was left to the donor and his heirs. So that was another issue too. That some of that's in my book on the hospitals, but it's it, it's very complicated. Sure, um, Byzantine, you might say. <laughs> yeah, Byzantine. I, um, yeah. I mean, when you get into administration, these things get complicated. Well, you you know, you might be thinking too when you get past the sixth century, a lot of the big philanthropic institutions that we know about that become famous, like the Pantocrator or the Mangada, or um, and what was the one by Miro Leon? I think that was the one in the tenth century. They're yeah. founded directly by a particular emperor. And then he uh, retains control of it, but he does give power over the institution to the superior of the monastery to whom those charities are connected, you know, as in the case of Pontecrider. Right. Super- you, yeah, the Mirelion you mentioned, this is Ramanos the first in the 10th. Yeah, century. yeah. Didn't he make a provision that it was supposed to provide 30,000 loaves of bread you know, I can't. I only there's not a lot about about that uh, particular uh, institution, so I didn't use it too much. But it definitely was important because there was a couple of, of Zenon texts that were written uh, by this yeah. uh, by a, a physician at that particular Zenon, the one that's connected to the Miraleon complex. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't know. He may have done that. You know, I, I don't know. Yeah. So you mentioned the urban monasticism, and just now you use the term complex. So I want to dive yeah. into that a little bit more because right. some of these institutions are uh, adjacent to monasteries, both institutionally and physically. Yes, they, they have they interface with them in some kind of institutional way. Can you talk a little bit more about that, or give some examples? Like, what do the monasteries have to do, for example, with a hospital or? Uh, you know, well, the, yeah, the classic example I have, as everybody knows, is the one of the Pantocrator, but the same situation is true at the Mangana, um, which I have worked with just recently, so I know a little more about that uh, than I do about Romanus's uh, complex. But at the Pantocrator, you have the monastery, 
and the superior uh, who uh, has control over the finances of the whole institution. So he has to, he can't choose not to, he has to give certain amount to the hospital, certain amount to the Gerakomion, the old age home, and then a certain amount to the leprosarium, but that was never built, but it, you know, supposedly that was going to be there. Mm. Uh, and then in the actual hospital, the Zenon, the um, director, the Nosokomos, is the one in charge of paying the people and buying the supplies. So and by the description of the job, he wouldn't necessarily need to be a physician, but often after the 12th century, he is a physician. The people that run the actual medical aspect are primicarioi, primicarii in modern Greek. And those are, they. there are two of them, but they work in shifts, like the whole the whole staff of the Pontecrater um, uh, uh, physicians, the medical staff. They go in these shifts. They work one month and they're off. So that who's ever primicarius of the month is in charge of all the um, medical decisions. And actually, the superior is not supposed to have anything to do with that. So they're independent, not directly part of the monastery in the sense of the medical facility uh, aspect of it. You know, there's always this criticism made by the Muslim or the Islamic historians that only the Muslim hospitals were secular. And I maintain, no, the Byzantines are too, that the church is not involved in the uh, in the activities of the physicians. For mm-hmm. example, no requirement like there is in the West that a patient confesses sins. There's no requirement. Right. There's no requirement that they go to liturgy. There is a requirement that they participate in a procession. I think it was on Holy Thursday uh, in honor of the patrons. You know, there's certain uh, they have certain things that are supposed to do to uh, honor uh, the Komneni founders. But as far as I know, they don't they're never forced to pray. There's a, there's a chapel. I think there's two actually men and one for the men and one for the women. Um but it's not nearly as forced as you get in the West. So it is a medical institution. And in that sense, uh, independent. So that's why when I did hospitals, when I did that book, I had to go into Byzantine medicine so much. Yeah. And that's where you get in trouble, both me and anybody else that does it, because we're not trained in, 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 in modern medicine. And it's hard for us to see what would be the goals. That's one of the reasons I've, partnered up with this Edward Hoptian Khan in um, in Vancouver, since he's trained to be an orthopedic surgeon, he sees things in Greek Byzantine texts that I don't see. And, you know, it's very important, I think, uh, before certainly Byzantine medical history goes forward to sort of get cooperation from the medical profession. They, you know, they can add a lot because they see things that a person trained in Greek isn't going to see. Right. Like me, I never even took a biology course. I was told, take your Greek. So I went, had two Greeks and Greek courses in high school. And for that, I didn't have to take biology or chemistry. So yeah, I, mean, I, I, I know exactly what you mean. Um, I, the, the way I put it at a conference once, and this was on the reception of ancient Greek texts, um, and somehow or other, the conversation came to Archimedes. Um, many of whose works we have. Mm-hmm. And the problem yeah. is that you could 
until very recently, you could not easily find translations of them, nor studies of them. And right. of course, classicists never read these. And it's this paradox where you have like, one of the most intelligent people who ever lived. Yeah. <laughs> he's never being studied because the people who can read his works can't understand what on earth he's talking about because it's you know, yeah. fairly advanced mathematics. And the people who know the mathematics can't read the work. And, and you know, they're not that interested in the history of the field usually. So it, it takes yeah, a yeah. combination of interest to get that. And in the case of physicians, they don't make any money with the Byzantines. <laughs> no patents. But this is another thing. I think it's hard for us, even though we know Greek, to get the subtle things. I, I've been working with this Paula Virginia text, text with Hopticon, and I will go through some of these words just using a men or a that, you know, the whole thing in Greek. Mm -hmm. with that. Uh, they're trying to say something that even though I know Greek, I don't speak ancient Greek, and I didn't work in it with ancient Greek physicians to know little ways they say stuff. So to figure that out, you really almost have to sit down with a physician who can say, oh, he's trying to say. There's a couple of cases where Hoptinkan pointed that out. That one case, I, I'm trying to remember what it was. It was a, it's something to do with the uh, with one of the pr protrusions of the spinal cord that it would wiggle uh, even, you know, uh, and create a like a uh, depression in the back. And he knew that and picked up what Paula Vagina was trying to say, but I didn't. Because I yeah, when this, when this uh, pro process of the spine would uh, break, it wouldn't necessarily hurt or anything. It just uh, gets a depression. Well, he knew that, see? And so he straightened it out, the translation over some mistakes that are even in uh, the one by Adams, which is very good because he was a practicing physician. That he made it back in the 19th century. But that's the kind of thing you almost have to sit down with a physician, or in the case of Archimedes, with a mathematician, and talk about what the whole context is. So I'm not sure we have translations of Archimedes. Uh, we do now. I think there was a team that was putting them. With together. a team. It would take a team. Yeah. 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 Um, so let's get back to the institution. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, and we can come back to the medical things if there's time. I, I just want right, to. Make right. Sure right. That, yeah. I just want to get that out of the way. But... Um, I want the audience to have a relatively vivid picture of what these things entail because. When we talk about the Pantocrator today or the Muradlion or whatever, you know, you, you think of the church because that's right. the only part that survives. And so this is um, a, a, the church at the center of a monastic complex, but that complex included all of these other institutions as well. Right. So we're thinking more along the lines of something like a college campus. Exactly. Yeah. How big right. would be interesting to know? We don't actually know. Yeah. With campus would have been the superior as a kind of provost figure or something <laughs> running all of these different institutions right. so it's fairly complex and what i liked about your analysis was how you talk about the different kinds of social values that are animating the different parties involved in this in these yes. institutions so there's you know, there's a monastic and there's the imperial and there's a lay and the medical and so forth can you talk a little bit about those like what kinds of values are represented here and, and how do they all find this middle ground to 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 make this thing work in the case uh let's see what 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 particular one would i talk about i guess the hospital since we're dealing there yeah you've got the monastery which is trying to basically 
separate itself from contact with the world. So they don't want to really interact much, although they do. The one place where the monastery does interact, the head of the Gerokomion, uh, the old old age home, uh, was a monk. Uh, but the rest of the staff is lay, are lay uh, in that. And, and there is no monk involved in the hospital to the extent that even if a monk is sick, uh, John the sec, uh, John Comnenus actually wrote into the Tipicon, no monk can come and use the hospital. So the hospital was completely separate. In fact, I, I kind of think the word Xenon, one reason that catches on is it's the guests or the people that are strangers to the monastic community. That's one possibility. There's, mm. But anyway, so the monks were excluded. They had their own little infirmary within the monastery. And then depending on the seriousness the level of physician would go in there to treat them. So there was a place where the first step of the uh, ascent in the process of a student becoming an official life doctor was to go treat the monks. And then if it was serious, the primicarius, primicarius would send a better, you know, more experienced physician. So the monks never came into the hospital. So that was a separate interest. And then, of course, the hospital is totally medical. There are religious ceremonies, but they're related to commemorations on the death of the founder and the family. And then there's something on Holy Thursday, a procession that I think all the sick are supposed to be part of. And I think there's one other. I think there's something on the Feast of uh, of Cosmos and Damien also, as I recall. So there were some religious duties in the hospital, but nothing like in the West. No daily masses or anything like that. Um Let's see. Is there another? Focus? Well, about the about the hospitals. I mean, the, the values animating the hospitals, and and I think this is important to stress because it might not be right. obvious to many people that the goal is to provide medical healing. Exactly. No. Right. Not just to sort of comfort people until they die or something yeah. like no, that. No, that's very clear. In fact, I have that passage where it's very clear. Well, it's actually clear in the Panacar. If someone in the Gerakomian gets a acute disease that's curable. He's transferred over to the hospital, but once he gets better, goes back to the Garakomian. The Garakomian is where you actually, it, the name is an old age home, but they evolve into hospitals for chronic cases. The one that Isaac, the brother of uh, Isaac, the, um, the brother-in-law of uh, Manuel, the, 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 or maybe the uncle, he builds one. Uh, it's in Inus over on the coast of uh, Thrace or near the coast of in Thrace. Yeah. That particular Tipicon, the Tipicon survives and it sets up a Garakomian, but at no time does the founder Isaac call the patients there old. He calls them sick. And then he has a rule of how you release them. If they get better and can function on their own, they get their clothes back and whatever they came in with and you discharge them. Now, of course, old people are also chronically ill. They don't get better, unfortunately, and uh, they would be there also. So in uh, I think the distinction is uh, Gerakomian is really a hospital for non-curable diseases. And that's one of the reasons why lepers sometimes sent to them. Okay, we'll get to lepers in a moment. Let's yeah. start with orphans, uh, because this was a remarkable institution, too, and you wrote right. a separate book, book uh, on, on them. So... Maybe we should focus on the great orphanage in Constantinople as a kind of right, yes. ideal type. It's the one we have the most information about. 
Yeah, we have almost no information on other orphanages. So what children were placed in them and how were they cared for there and by whom? Well, the institution comes from the fourth century. It's the oldest philanthropic institution in Constantinople. Uh, and that shows up by its being primary. You know, it's always mentioned first. It has the privileges of Hagia Sophia. It was actually attached to the cathedral church, you know, the bishop's church, then became separate in the 15th, 5th century. But um, this is the weird thing. From very early on, it focuses, it always has a program of um, uh, catechism to teach people Christianity. As early as the ninth century, they uh, they have a uh, the orphans participate in a service after Easter after they've just been baptized. So my impression is it's not absolute, but my impression is many of the kids that end up in the orphan orphan or trophion are war orphans, either from the northern borders back in the fifth and sixth century, mm. uh, from the eastern borders. And then we know, because it says specifically Alexius brought back to Constantinople around 1200, a little bit before, after 1100, brought back um, a, a lot of orphans whom he had picked up in his campaign. And many of them were either Turks, you know, whom, Turkish orphans, or Greek orphans whose parents had died and who were ne have never learned the faith. Because it says that the as it gets back, they divide the orphans. And Anna Komnena talks about it. one group has relatives, so they go to their relatives. The other group has had some Christian training. They go to monastery orphanages, small, small ones. But those who have no training go to the orphanotrophium. So it that's why there's always a catechetical program there. There's always someone in charge of teaching uh, Christianity to these kids. So that's an interesting aspect. And of course, Anna Komnena mentions all the foreigners there at the orphanage, the, the children, the Turks and the Scythians and the Franks. Of course, they're not, not Christians, but they're in there with other foreigners. So, and then, a, uh, which I showed you, we talked about this. I did a new introduction to that orphan book last mm -hmm. year in the paperback edition. And I found the example of uh, Hagia Theodoretos, uh, who was the prime minister for Manuel I, that he was an abandoned baby. Now, you pointed out he might, I, I was thinking after we had that conversation, uh, uh, that um, he might have been abandoned to a, a monastery. There's no proof that he went to the orphanage. But at some point, he ended up in the orphanage school because he goes on and on about what excellent, or it's actually Manassas' story about it, what a wonderful education he got in rhetoric and, you know, all the good things that you get out of a high-class education, best teachers in Constantinople. And then he ended up joining the staff of the of the palace and rose to be uh, 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 the prime minister. So I was not aware until having read that little story that graduates of the Orphanotrophian could move up in the secular bureaucracy. I knew that graduates of the Orphanotrophian frequently became bishops in, in the clergy, but I, I didn't realize lay people could too, but there's at least one example of that. So it tended to get, I would say, foreign babies or foreign children, uh, uh, war orphans, and then also abandoned children, either directly to the orphanotrophian or to some brefetrophian 
attached to it. Um, I think Anna does picture uh, women wet nurses at the Orphanotrophian. So they, they, they don't say anything about that, but it's mentioned in her description. And then you have the story of uh, Hagiotorites um, having been a, a breathless when he enter, entered. So yeah, yeah th that's a very interesting institution. And it was taken over by the government by, I think it's uh, Nicephorus I. He, it had been under the patriarch, but it becomes a, a government agency, really. In the Orphanotrophus is a government-paid government bureaucrat, you know. Yes, and just the sheer longevity of this, I mean... Yes, <laughs> I was thinking about that. Let's see, Oxford goes on about how old is <laughs> thousand years. But if you're a graduate at the Orphanotrophion... Right. Claim, let's see, 13, well, it didn't last much into the 14th century. But you still will be 1,100 years, I think. Well, by the time Agios Azoritis, uh, you know, is at the peak of his career, he's right. a of an institution that has been around for almost 800 years. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's incredible. I I thought the same thing. They have pictures of famous teachers on the wall, all that kind of stuff. You know? Yes. Oh, I, the, the kind of lore that that place kind of acquired that we just don't have. It's such a pity. Yeah. I mean, I really would want to know you know, what the inside culture was like. Um, anyway. Yeah. There, it, it, now, I told, uh, in the book, I think I pointed out there's one example of a homosexual relationship, and it's uh, used to make fun of this guy, but not because of the homosexual relationship, but the fact that he couldn't extract himself from that. You know, he didn't grow up, as it were. So there, there is some interesting thing in that. I can't remember who wrote that. It's, a, it's an attack on... Um, it's in the book, uh, an attack on somebody this guy doesn't like. You know, he's a bishop now, and he's yeah, inevitably his continued homosexuality that that began in the orphanotrophion, and that's not criticized. But the fact that a a person grows out of that—that's sort of a an old Greek idea too. You know, it goes all the way back to Greece. But there is there is that one account of that. Oh, there is one story. There's another orphanage that's really interesting. In uh, Navpak, Navpaktos, um, is it, let's see, it's John uh, Apokovkos, it's the bishop. Yes. And his letters, actually, I owe that to Martina McGrath at Dumbarton Oaks. She found this. He's got two or three letters in there describing his his orphan school. It's a school that the bishop is running, you know, out of the cathedral church there. And he says... Flat out, the orphans hate me. You know, they can't. They can't stand the discipline I'm giving them. And then he goes on how they need, you know, whippings more than they. Do. Oh, <laughs> and then he has one. He has one orphan that he gives some job to do that he actually likes. I think he'd been his uh, his godfather, so he was abandoned. You know, as a little tiny baby, and so the bishop raises him. But the kid never does what he's told. You know, the story as it unfolds is quite clear that any job he gets, he does a bad job. So he finally sends them to another bishop and says, look, see what, see what you can straighten them out, you know? So you get a really good picture of what it's like to raise little humans, you know, in that. <laughs> in those three le letters, three or four letters, actually. Yes. I have a soft spot for Apokafkos because I spend part of the summer in Nafpaktos. Oh, really? You know, I've never been there. It and oh, it's a beautiful location and it's a wonderful little town. And 
it's got everything, you know, it's right on the water at the narrow point of the Gulf of Corinth. So the Peloponnese is right there. It opens to the Corinthian Gulf, to the Ionian yeah. Sea. There are mountains right behind it. There's so much fresh water. Nafaktos, they're, they're like all these public fountains where you, there's all this clear water, cold that's just running down from the mountains and you can go fill up. And it's this wonderful location. And now Afbokov, of course, I know was a difficult person and he got into fights with like, <laughs> all these people. But every time I'm there, I just kind of think about him because he's the one, you know, important person from the whole of this history that we know was there. And we have all of the letters and so forth. And I always keep wondering whether his Episcopal residence was here, you know, there as I'm walking right. around. It's, it's really something. Um, anyway, so you also found some evidence that the orphans were like uh, trained to sing in choir. Oh, that's super important. Yeah, thanks for reminding me of that. Um, not only that, and now this is the interesting question. It starts a tradition because the first me mention of it is in the fifth century that the people of Constantinople go out on Sundays to listen to the orphan choir. And so that's the first example. But then, you know, we know there was an orphan choir that sang for imperial services. And the only place, I mean, it doesn't actually say from the, well, I think it, it actually says from the orphanage in, in one of the passages, but other ones, it just says the orphan choir. And uh, so there's that. And then there's a, a commentary by a Theodore Prodromos on singing uh, on, on different uh, songs, kind of, uh, what do you call those? Uh, uh, canons that were sung during the liturgy, but not from the service, not from the scriptures. So not Psalms, but anyway, commentary. And it was written for the orphanage. And then you have the Orphanotrophium in Rome, which was built in the seventh century. And it's called Orphanotrophium. It's not a Latin word. Um, that, uh, become is, uh, evolves into the Schola Cantorum. Hmm. Only that they, as late, 12th century, the orphans in Rome at the Schola Cantorum, by then it was called that, sing hymns in Greek, which nobody knows. It's been transcribed in the Latin letters. So yes. the, the tradition of the Byzantine singing continued in the Schola amongst the orphans. Now, by that time, they might have been taking other, you know, uh, you know, paid non-orphans, but it, that that becomes a problem, but I don't see see that at Constantinople. But it might have happened there too. That rich people knew that orphanage was so good, they paid to have their guys, their kids, get in there. I I don't know, but anyway, in Rome, then you get the tradition of conservatories in Italy. Conservatory is a orphanage. It's a senate conservatorio where you conserve the kids from the temptations of the big city if they're orphans. And of course, it becomes synonymous with a music school. So yeah, that music tradition, whether it has the origins by copying from Constantinople, certainly in Rome, that's true. But is it that taking care of kids and giving them something they enjoy doing is often related to music? There's an African-American orphanage in Charleston formed right after the Civil War where they did marching dances. And the Charleston actually comes from this that uh -huh. for a dance that the orphans of this African-American school did in uh, when they would dance in Charleston and became famous all over the country because they would march in different parades. So there's another example. But is that a sort of human nature or is that a copying from Constantinople? I don't know.
Right, right. Well, that's yeah, a big thing with music. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, when we think of orphanages, we usually think of very sad stories and institutions <laughs> that are underfunded and kind of decrepit right. and right. But if this is a this is a prestige institution in Constantinople, it's very well funded. Um, you know, emperors and bishops and so on are are using it as a you know display for their philanthropy and so forth. I, I can easily imagine you know, people wanting their kids to be raised there and any, you know, anything you, you have something um, prestigious in Constantinople, you, you soon, you will soon start having honorary orphans, titular orphans, <laughs> orphans who are paying to be orphans. Yeah. Anyway, just like with all the offices. Okay. Yeah. So I thought the same thing in every single Byzantine philosophy, it's so well run or at least seems so that Probably, well, we know in the Pantocrator, they're the example of Irene, the sister-in-law of Manuel I, the reigning emperor, goes to the hospital in the Pantocrator. It's in that poem mm. by, uh, you know, that, uh, what do they call him? Is it Toko Tronos? One of the poets. No, the manga poet. Yeah. Who was all these poems. Ganyos, yes. They're supposedly coming out soon, you know, in, in an edited edition. But anyway, um, yeah. yeah, the typescript of it. Um and the interesting thing is the guy that's with Irene, who is this poet, I guess he was accompanied her to the hospital, complains about how long they wait for the physicians to come. So she doesn't seem to get any special treatment. She has to wait. Right. Then is there's that funny scene where the teaching physician shows up accompanied by the two students. And the poet makes fun of the teacher as being sort of a windbag and really likes the two students. They're the ones that actually help. Irene feel better, you know, with their prescriptions. So that's interesting that they're, but see, that also guarantees the quality of the institution. Unfortunately, if something's just for the poor, people don't take care of it. But if everybody benefits, yeah, it, it's, it's really top notch. And I, the only question is, do the rich kids push the the poor out of these things? And that I don't know. Apparently there's some evidence of that having happened at that Hershey school up in um, Pennsylvania, which is an orphanage. I forget it's uh, uh, Hershey, Pennsylvania. The family's founded a famous orphanage. I met some kids from that or graduates of that. And there was some problems there with too many elite families getting people in. Mm. And that happened also at a school in Virginia, the real elite school at uh, Stanton, Virginia, started out as an orphan school for girl Episcopalians. Now it's a real swank school, you know, probably costs 80, 90,000 a year to go to. So I, I, that's the problem. If you just leave something totally for the poor, sometimes the quality goes down. It shouldn't, but that's the way people are. But the Byzantines do seem to have been aware that you need to have kind of a mix. Yeah, elite buy-in. So let's turn to the Leprosaria. Yeah, the leprosy, I get into that. Actually, John Nesbitt from DO, the the expert with the seals and coins, yes. died this year, early this year. Um, he said, why don't you do the leprosy? Because they're often mentioned in there. And he and I decided we would do that. Uh, he had a couple of seals that were helpful. In fact, one of the seals is a famous seal from the 12th century. It's the, uh, it, what's the inscription is, the seal of the brothers of Zodikos. And John thought it was a, there must have been a monastery at the Leprosarium of Zodicus. 
But I couldn't find that. By the way, that's across, let's see, that's across the Golden Horn uh, in uh, up on the hill. There was a spring up there and it was walled off and the leprosarium was on that north side, not in old Constantinople. Mm-hmm. Right, um, but there's no monastery mentioned there. And we couldn't really figure that seal out. And about two years ago, a man named uh, Dan Ganner published an article in Dumbarton Oaks Papers uh, showing that Basil, actually Basil of Caesarea, actually built a leprosarium in uh, Caesarea, not a hospital. I had said it was a hospital. Other scholars have claimed it was a hospital. And we're blaming Basil for that mistake. (laughs) Because Basil wrote a letter to the... um, to the governor of uh, Cappadocia, defending himself because a whole bunch of landowners had complained about this, uh, the Basilias, this philanthropic institution. So Basil goes on, what have we done? You know, we built a palace for you when you come. It's a monastery and we're taking care of strangers and sick people. He never said Tocotrophion and he never said Tokos. Now what Kenner has proven is that Tokos is is a euphemism for a leper, a leper. often in patristic literature, like uh, Gregory of Nazianz uses tokos to mean the leper. Tokotrophium was a was a euphemism for a leprosarium, but Basil never calls it in letter ninety four of Tokotrophion or or the the residents of Toki. He says they're sick and strangers. So I don't want to say he lied. I mean, he's the father of the Eastern Church. But in that letter, he obscures the fact. And if you look at every other description of the Tocotrophian by Gregory of Nazianzus, uh-huh. in funeral oration, and uh, Cantor goes through a whole bunch of texts that come later that describe it, it was a leprosarium. So uh, that that opened up a door to me and John and then we look through some of uh, Justinian's constitutions on charity. And there's one, I got it written down here. I think it's uh, book one. Anyway, it's in the first book of uh, the code, the uh, Justinian's code, which is ecclesiastical issues. In one of the uh, entries, Justinian writes that people can donate property either to the Ptocotrophion, and remember that's a euphemism for leprosarium, or to the Toki themselves, so the lepers. And that explains the seal, because according to Justinian's legislation, the lepers existed as a separate corporation with their own seal. And that would explain also why lepers had a lot of control over the resources of the institution. And we know that from the West, because when the institution transfers to the West, the lepers run it. They elect their own uh, master. They control the property. They have to sign off on buying and selling. Actually, there's a, a law in that same codex, the one right before Justinian by Emperor Anastasius, that says only in the case of Tocotrophy do all the the actual benefactors, the Tochi, have to vote on, on uh, contracts of leasing or selling the property. So... As a result of leper, what would you call it? Uh, Gregory of Nazianz mentions it. Lepers seem to have a a community spirit. They're bonded together by their suffering and their helping of one another. It's kind of a social contract uh, idea forced out of my nature. 
that they transfer that into their institutions and in some cases take it over. Not so much in Constantinople because the emperor always, you know, has the oversight. But when they get to the West, the lepers literally take them over. Uh, if you read that book, uh, you know, Walking Corpses, the second part is about leprosaria in the West. And some of them, the lepers completely control. They elect their everything. They determine everything, selling, buying, appointing the priest, everything. Now, so is this, is this in part because other people don't want to get too involved in the leper community or just want to stay away? Uh, well, the fact that some of them were quite wealthy, so there would have been uh, incentive for, uh, say, a clergyman to want to be elected to the master position. Well, we know actually in Genoa, there was uh, an attempt by the bishop to start appointing, you know, favored clergymen to administer the, the leprosarium in Genoa, which was built in the 12th century. But the lepers, it took them almost 40 years, but they went to the papacy and complained about it. They they hired lawyers. They actually got Pope, it was, this was actually the, in the uh, 15th century, Pope, uh, uh, which one was it? It's Pope, the famous Nicholas V that started the library. Um, Nicholas V sided with the lepers and said, yeah, the bishop can't do this. You know that they're, they're protected. They they can elect their their uh, their own um, leader. So that was a jealous right. That uh, and the only way now, obviously in Byzantium, they didn't elect the leader. The leader, at least in Constantinople, was always appointed by the uh, by the emperor before the, by, before by the patriarch, but after you know eight eight ten or eight fifteen uh, by the emperor. Uh, but the property must still have been controlled by the lepers there because they have the seal that they have to put on any kind of contract. Right. So the self-government aspect of leprosaria is really fascinating uh, and not studied. Uh, we did it in the book, John and I, but all the criticism on the book and all the reviews focused on things we didn't take into account on, you know, disease factors. But the book is really a political book about running the leprosaria. Yes, and it is an aspect that I would in encourage people to take another look at uh, because we really don't have that much by way of sort of self-regulating kind of corporations, to use the term very, very broadly, um, in this society. And this is an example that you brought out that I think really, really deserves a, a closer look. Uh, so, Tim, we, we have a few minutes left, and I was wondering if you wanted to Take this opportunity to talk about more about the medical aspects, some of the more interesting uh, medical treatments that you have found, uh, you know, buried in some of the um, texts. Yes. Or treatments uh, that, you know, seem to you innovative for that period or just generally medical procedures that we didn't think they were doing, but you believe that we they did and so forth. Right. The most famous one or the one that you know, I I bring out as early as when I did the, the hospital book is that operation for removing kidney stones. It's never, there's absolutely no medical text that talks about it, but there's the early ninth century account of the life of, um, is it Theophanes? I think the life of Theophanes, um, where, and it's uh, edited by, in, in with the uh, big history of, uh, of uh, uh, written by Theophanes. Anyway, it, he suffered from kidney stones 
And the description of it, and I, I, I'm just going to paraphrase it here, is the physicians used carefully designed instruments, in the plural, to go in through the urinary tract canal into the bladder and cut up the stone so they would flow out. And the Greek does say flow out with the urine. So that operation replaced cutting in to the bladder to remove them. So this would be an operation wasn't discovered in Western Europe or developed until the 19th century. It's in France as part of the, uh, uh, what do they call that movement where they uh, improved hospitals. It was developed around, I think, 1820, around there. So now there's no, that has been disputed because the medical historians only look at medical texts. They will not take seriously. In fact, bad about it. They won't take the the uh, uh, the Pantocrator Typicon for what it says. You know, it's not a medical text. And to their credit, there's literally nothing in any of the official medical texts that reflect any of the sophistication of the Pantocrator or obviously of this operation of grinding down the kidney stones into smaller pieces within the bladder so you don't have to cut in there. So um, there's one example and that, you know, I, you just can't dismiss something like that. I don't think, you know, uh, out of hand that it, it's not described. Now, the, the, the recently uh, Edward Hopkinson, uh, after having read my article on uh, Byzantine medical thought and practice that you included in the uh, intellectual history of, of Constantinople, um, of Byzantium it is, uh, he looked at, Paul of Agena's chapter or work on fractures, of course, he was interested in fractures because he's he's working to become a um, orthopedic surgeon. And he found a passage in a 19th century French surgical manual that said Paul of Agena was the first person to develop a laminectomy. That's the, the in the, 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 um, the vertebra, around the spine that, that that makes up the spinal cord, all those little vertebrae segments protect the spinal cord. And on the outside, in several places, it's a very thin uh, bone. It's uh, not thick. It's thick. Let's see. Let's see mine. It's thick on the inside, but on the outside, it has these projections. They call them processes that form the spina, you know, the spines, mm -hmm. the, the, the uh, stickers, literally, or thorns along the spine. Those things can break, but the actual lamina can break this little, um, this ring where it's thinner. If that happens, and if as a result of the fracture, the, the piece of the lamina points inward and hits the spinal cord, you die within about five or six days. It'll kill you. It causes numbness first, but then eventual death. And if it happens in one up on top here, the uh, top in the neck, it happens real quick. Now, in Paul of Agena's section on fractures, he mentions repairing that surgically. Now, as Hoptikon pointed out, there would be no way that anybody looking at the surface of the body would know that was broken. So they had to die first. And then when they died, the physicians opened up the spinal cord and found in enough cases that it was because of this inward turned lamina. Mm. But what, what I think pretty clearly Hopti Khan has proven 
is that physicians prior to Paula Vagina had been performing post-mortem autopsies. Now that's recorded in, in Procopius with the example of cutting into the buboes mm-hmm. um, on the patients. So we know that was being done. Yeah. But they really know much from that. Of course, they didn't know anything about bacteria or any of that. So, but they could see a broken bone sticking into a spinal cord. Mm-hmm. And his theory is that that was, that was a new kind of teaching going on probably in Constantinople as early as the sixth century. It really would have had to have been in a hospital, although I guess that can be argued otherwise. We don't have any proof of that. But where else would you know what the symptoms would be leading up to the death? Namely, numbness in the hands, you know, vomiting, you know, sickness, uh, uh, unable to feel below a certain part of the body, and then death. And then you would open up the spinal cord and see, oh, below where this this impingement occurred, uh, he couldn't feel, you know, he couldn't go to the bathroom properly, all that sort of thing. Yeah. That's the problem. And so we need to perform an operation to fix that. So I think uh, that's what I'm really working on now. And actually, Edward's trying to, he's got the article in at DOP right now. Hopefully we'll get that published because it really will be interesting to see the debate that that, that, that engenders. You know, it could be rather hot, actually. Yes, I expect so. to be out there. And I, I very much look forward to that. And I, I sometimes suspect that this kind of information might have become available in a military context, uh, especially military doctors who- that, that, I thought of that too, yeah. Yeah. Especially um, because Eretaeus of, Chazer, of uh, Cappadocia, who's supposed to be t- uh, second century, he did post-mortem autopsies also. I think I wrote to you about that a couple of weeks ago. And there's a case in which he matches up different symptoms of dysentery with very precise internal uh, lesions in the and even patients of the uh, intestine. And the amazing thing is Kudlian and Edelstein, both of whom did work in the early 20th century or mid 20th century on Arateus, didn't notice that. It's been noticed, but again, by, by physicians, uh, a, a, an Italian physician writing in, in uh, Siena, that's how I found about it, because I read Italian pretty well. So somebody sent me a book by a guy I never heard of, Giorgio Weber, who is a anatomist at University of, of Siena. And he wrote a book about it, you know, which no no historian of medicine read. I, I remember and, when uh, you told me. I remember when you told me about this. And yeah, now his scholarship is as far as I can, but he had to work from Latin. He knew Latin, but he didn't know any Greek. Yeah. And I've read it too. And I mean, I don't see how you would know the lesions matching the symptoms that occur while you're alive, unless you went in and, 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 you know, cut into the intestines and found these strange lesions. So that's another unexplainable thing without some kind of physician working with it. And it, oh, I know you. It, it he might have worked in a military hospital. That's why I wanted to back you up on that. I've thought about that too because we know they had pretty fancy hospitals. Yeah, there. And he would be in that time. Although some people say he might have worked in the early third century, but they we don't know too much about the legions. What happens in the thirteenth? But at least the early part, they might still have had fancy hospitals somewhere. 
I want to emphasize this point because it brings us full circle back to the comments that I made at the very beginning, um, oh. which is how you do this wonderfully synthetic work and, you know, working, for example, on hospitals and medical treatment, but not exclusively from the medical texts, right? Uh, which is, I think, so important that you look at hagiographies, uh, for example, or typica or whatever, because I've had a similar problem as you have had with the medical historians who, you know, use the medical textbooks with legal historians who focus on the legal texts and the codes and don't, it's kind of weird, don't believe that anything actually happened legally if it's not in the codes. And that's <laughs> just clearly not the case. Um, and there's one flashpoint of controversy is imprisonment you know as a punishment rather than as a temporary holding facility before the actual punishment is imposed or trial and legal historians will just keep insisting that in in the roman tradition imprisonment is not a proper punishment and you look at and then you have the historians and the hagiographers and the pepperologists and everybody saying but no clearly in these sources it's happening and you just have this impasse between these two groups who just can't seem to get over it. Anyway, that's a good place to wrap it up here methodologically. Tim, tremendous gratitude for all of the work that you've done. You've opened <laughs> up you. so many uh, fascinating facets uh, of, of this culture. Um, so I'm looking forward to the next one that you find. <laughs> all right, thanks. We'll see what happens in the next year. Yeah. yeah. Goodbye now.